You're listening to 100 p.m. in New York City, episode 56. One hundred PM is the show where we're interviewing one hundred expert product managers across five great cities to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product. Today's guest is Blair Reeves, principal product manager at SaaS. If you'd like to learn more after the show, be sure to visit our website at one hundred productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for hot topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, product coach and founder of The Development Factory. Let's dive right in and say hello to Blair. My name is Blair Reeves. I'm a principal product manager at SaaS Software. Welcome, Blair. I want to start with something that maybe you thought was long buried in your long resume of things that Uh you've done. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. The Peace Corps. Yeah. You spent some time in the Peace Corps. Yeah. I was a I was a health and water sanitation volunteer in, in Cameroon for two years. And was that sort of a straight out of school, earnest, wanna make the world a better place kind of thing? Or was that a sabbatical? <laughs> my from my something eyes else? are full of stars. <laughs> <laughs> you know? No, I mean kind of. I mean it, it was uh, it wasn't right out of school. Um, I graduated from University of Virginia and I worked in politics for a little while. And then I decided that I didn't want to work in politics anymore and that international development uh, might be a cool career and decided that I would join the Peace Corps because that way I could decide if if that was their career for me or not. And if it was, then the Peace Corps would be a real boost and give some great experience there. And if it wasn't, then it'd still be a good experience and uh, I'd learn a lot, and I did. Right. And we talk a lot on this show about the path that people take into product management and the theme that, of course, emerges over and over is it's very rarely a straight path. But the path of politics and then international development is one of the more rare examples. So (laughs) how did you go from that to product? After the Peace Corps, I actually worked in international aid for a couple of years after that, too. Uh, I moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I worked for a global health contractor there for several years as a program manager for a bunch of USAID projects in South Sudan, Vietnam, and Kenya. I spent a lot of time in Sudan in those years, and that was a real interesting thing, too. And I was still on that career path, so I decided I'd get an MBA. I was already in the Triangle region, Raleigh-Durham area, and Duke is right there, and Duke has a great school. And so I wound up at business school there. And I planned on staying in international development up until my second year. In between my first and second year, I'd done an internship at IBM in, uh, in product marketing. I learned a lot there that was very new to me. And I'd always, always kind of been into technology and software and, and, and stuff like that, but never professionally. And so I decided that I could always go back to, into global development. And uh, this would be my first real shot at kind of switching careers. So I did. And... I went back to IBM, and uh, they gave me a job, and that's what started my tech career. So was that a product marketing position then, or you had done that as kind of more of an intern and then came back in a different capacity? Yeah, so I I started in product marketing, and I did that for a number of years uh, before I moved into product management. I went into a company called Cormetrics that had just very recently been acquired by IBM, and we were still operating somewhat autonomously for for a while. And 
so we slowly we we started you know being absorbed more into IBM and doing more of the IBM stuff. And at that time, certainly, uh, CoreMetrics was one of the few native SaaS software as a service products that IBM had. And uh, so we got to see a lot of the growing pains around how a company that size adjusted to and learned from a SaaS business model, a SaaS delivery model, a selling model, and all that sort of thing. And that was really interesting to me. So, uh, you know, how IBM learned to deal with enterprise SaaS was, was really cool. It was a great experience, but I, I moved over to product management after a couple of years in that, and that experience has really helped me be more successful. How did IBM delineate the product manager role from the product marketer role? Because this is something that I've seen, particularly in enterprise, that those gray areas, right? In a, in a smaller organization, the space between marketing and product is nebulous at best. But as the organizations tend to scale up, there seems to be more specific functions for the gray spaces. Absolutely. So yeah. what was a product marketer's area of responsibility there as opposed to product management? So there's a lot of things that product marketing owns that product management can have input on and have influence over and even collaborate on, right? So the thing about enterprise software is, of course, we sell all our stuff. We have to find customers for it. And so customers need to know need to know about the product. They need to know about uh, what the value proposition is, and then a, a product marketer translates those those uh, value propositions into language that a market and a customer can understand. And that's that sounds very straightforward, and really isn't in a lot of ways, right? So you think about a, a lot of enterprise software does a very specialized, you know, has a very very specialized focus. Uh, maybe it's designed for a particular industry or a niche within that industry or a very specific use case. And some of those users immediately understand what the value proposition is and some others don't. So product marketing is very content heavy, a lot of it, right? So we did a lot of uh, sales kits are a good example of this, creating material that your sellers can use. You know, we call it seller enablement, which is kind of like a, a wonky enterprise term, but you know, giving your sellers ammunition to use. You know, good sellers need information that they understand so that they can communicate those messages in, in, in ways that your market understands. Marketers do a lot of seller enablement in, in a place like IBM, which has, at that time, you know, 400,000 some odd employees. Tiny. Yeah, yeah I know. It's it, it, again. So, I, you know, we'd go to, you know, Singapore or we'd go to Europe and go to or go to you know Latin America and, and you have a giant IBM Salesforce there that needs to understand about this product that they've never heard of, right? Because I mean we were a pretty small, I mean we were a good sized company, but we were small for IBM, the IBM world, the global scale. And so when you're trying to teach sellers about a product and about really about an industry that they now need to go sell into. That was a big, big challenge for us, and and we were pretty successful at it. Um, but you know, product management has a lot of input on that, not only in terms of making sure that marketing understands what those messages are and what the product does and what it's really good at, what we're not very good at. But you know, product marketers can also add a lot of value in terms of you know market intelligence, competitive intelligence, and uh, seller assistance as well. So it really depends. Of course, it depends on all of the, the product and the and the and the and the market you're working in and everything. The two do work very closely together, and there's a, there's occasionally some very productive overlap there. But you know, both kind of you know have to carve out roles and responsibilities that work for them. And and how product marketing and product management 
can work together very productively is a really, I think, tricky thing for a lot of large organizations to deal with and one that smaller companies don't always necessarily have a very good appreciation for and something that many of them have to learn. So one of the things we, you know, we, we've tried to do is, is help, help them not reinvent the wheel every time they do this. Right. So what then is the product manager responsibility of the channel enablement, the sales enablement stuff that you're speaking about is a big part of the marketer's load. What is the product manager actually owning in that in that context? So one thing that they can do is a lot of the internal stuff, right? So you have an external sales deck, right, that you know sellers can use and maybe and oftentimes that'll be tweaked for pitching to a particular industry like hospitality, tourism versus retail versus travel versus finance versus whatever. A lot of the internal stuff can be owned by product marketing, but often product management will own things like enabling sellers internally or enabling sales engineers about things like um, screenshots and implementation details. What kind of industries or, or niches in which we're strong, right? Which, if we know the product really well, we know what particular use cases we're, we're, we're targeting, what use cases we're probably a little bit, a little bit weaker on, uh, so even in a place like, think about CRM, like there are a lot of different use cases for CRM in different kinds of industries, and you know, so certain products are stronger in some than others, and stronger in uh, maybe a, a global multinational you know, distributed kind of company than it is in a kind of more regional, you know, smaller kind of company. Uh, so that's one thing. Another can be just uh, more engineering details. So the classic product management responsibility is working with engineering to, to decide what, what to build. And so a product marketer, they, they might have ideas for what we should do as well. But a product manager's job is really to translate market signals we're seeing and input we're getting from our, from, from our field and translate that back into you know, what our market really needs and what, 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 the, what the signals are in terms of what enhancements and features to put in our product. And that's a little bit outside of the product marketing remit that again, this could be an overlapping area, but it's, uh, it's classically, you know, you know, more more our job because we have sort of a, a larger perspective on, on our market than a than the product marketing function might have, might have. Right. You were at this company; it was basically acquired by IBM. You were at a company that was acquired by Salesforce. You you have gone on to be where you are now, which is at SaaS. All of these are huge companies. You've only ever worked in these environments as a product manager. Mm-hmm. Like you're just like, I only want to be a product manager if the company <laughs> has thousands of people. Otherwise, I'm out. Uh, not necessarily. So, I mean, at Demandware, uh, we were. I joined Demandware. We were about 400 people. We weren't IBM scale or anything like that. We were a pretty good sized company. We were growth stage. When I left, I want to say we were like 700. So we didn't quite double the size of the company while I was there. But it, it was a big, big growth stage. I didn't necessarily pick them or SaaS because of their size, mm-hmm. but that's kind of where, where I wound up. I, I do find that pr- very well-defined product management functions are concentrated at larger companies. Um, you know, if, you're a ty- if you're a very small startup, uh, you may not ha- even have a product management function. And for very small companies that are, that are still uh, growing, you know, product management tends to take on a, a much more expansive role. Product marketing is different from like a brand or a solution-level marketing but when it comes down to product marketing, the product manager is effectively responsible for creating all this content and keeping track of it and keeping it current and enabling sellers and all this other stuff. In a smaller company, you wear a lot of hats. And that can be a cool challenge. And maybe I'll do it again one day. I, we'll see. But a bigger company has a different set of challenges. We're like 15,000 people at SaaS. And 
we, you know, we, we have subsidiaries everywhere, and they all need to know about our product, and uh, it has to be localized and, and translated and all this other stuff. So very different kind of set of challenges. Yeah, there's probably some people listening who would think 400 isn't small, but I guess yeah, you know, sure, relative yeah. <laughs> to the experiences you've had. Just briefly for, for the benefit of our audience, what is SaaS, the, the company that you're at now? So SaaS Software is about 40 years old. Uh, we're, we did almost $4 billion last year, uh, 15,000 people or so. We're based in North Carolina, outside of Raleigh, in Cary, North Carolina. We sell uh, analytics software, data management and data analytics software. In a lot of ways, SaaS kind of invented big data analytics back in the 70s um, and, and certainly commercialized it. I think we've been profitable every year since 1976, and uh, we're the largest privately held software company in the world. But you know, we're in oh, look, we're in North Carolina. We sell very specialized data science tools, and we sell solutions beyond that as well. For example, mine. But uh, that's kind of our, our sweet spot. So a lot of people are, are less familiar with SaaS. And now, of course, now we are now we're all talking about software as a service, and which at SaaS creates this like weird, you know, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're selling SaaS. We're SaaS. We're, no, we're, we're SaaS. SaaS. <laughs> we're also selling a SaaS. Yeah. In a SaaS form, you know. So there's all this, yeah. So there's a lot of that that we <laughs> learn to deal with. Yeah. Maybe eventually there'll have to be a rebrand at some point. So <laughs> we'll this is getting confusing. So. What is your product? What is the structure? Your title is principal product manager. Are there hundreds of principal product managers? <laughs> Are there three? Yeah, help us uh, get inside of that a little. Sure. So my product is uh, you know on the customer intelligence three hundred and sixty platform. SaaS has long had done things like campaign management, marketing resource management, and things like this. We've been doing that for fifteen some odd years now at this point. The CI360 platform is, is SaaS's first software-as-a-service platform to uh, deliver digital marketing resources. So we do everything from web analytics, promotion targeting, email marketing, uh, mobile marketing, push messaging. What we're trying to get towards with our platform and the way in which we, we think we, we differentiate ourselves versus like every other marketing cloud out there, because we don't really want to be a marketing cloud vendor because there are already, already a lot of those. Is bringing analytic detail to you know, digital data and, and 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 giving marketers the ability to take that data and and combine it with offline you know customer registration data. So any large company selling to consumers has a very large you know data warehouse full of maybe it's behavioral data, transactional data, or CRM data in customer customer registration. And you know still in 2018, it's still a real challenge for a lot of those people to combine that kind of identifiable information with. Uh, behavioral data from online. A lot of the marketing clouds require you to, you know, you forklift all your data into their cloud, or uh, you pull down their data, but then make it very difficult to match that to to data you have offline. Um, and for you know, data scientists and data analytics users who are already you know using SaaS, or maybe not, maybe not using SaaS, we're making it easier to match those two data sets together. Um, so with, you know, with, through an all, a, a software as a service platform. So, uh, in terms of uh, wh- how many principals there are, principal product manager is sort of a SaaS term, but it's it's a it's like a mid senior product manager. So I'm a senior product manager. There's some directors of, you know above me, and then there are a whole bunch of other um, plain product managers 
uh, below that as well. But not for my product, but for, 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 other, for many other products elsewhere. Uh, I don't get too hung up on the titles. You know, I just, you yeah. know, I'm more interested in kind of like what, what my product is and what we do. So Titles are so characteristically enterprise. But, you know, <laughs> there true. is this big theme for us on the show. We're trying to demystify what is product management. Yeah. And what complicates that, of course, is that what is product management changes significantly. I mean, you spoke earlier about the wearing of the different hats and, and what it means to be in a smaller organization. And I think equally, being in an enterprise organization and what it means to be a product manager is a whole other set of conversations, a whole other set of best practices. And in fact, you're writing a book on exactly this. I uh, wrote a book. <laughs> wrote it. Even better. Yeah. So it's called Building Products for the Enterprise. How did you come to be a book author in the midst of all of this? Did, did O'Reilly approach you? Were you just like had a burning desire to tell this story? So my co-author, Ben Gaines, he's a group product manager at Adobe. He and I have been, we've actually been competitors for years. Okay. <laughs> so I was at Cormetrics, he was at Adobe Analytics, which used to be Omniture, and they were kind of like at each other's throat. But we got to know each other that way, and uh, you know, he's a super cool guy, and he's much smarter than I am. So uh, we started talking, and then we, we took to like sending each other like funny, you know, funny tweets or articles or whatever. But you see people write about product management, and the thing about the product management literature is that it's all very, very heavily focused on startups and uh, the consumer market, and a lot of it is very hard to square with our experiences in enterprise software and hard to square with our experiences in the kind of companies we work in. So we always just kind of like laugh about it or whatever. But then he is in New York uh, you know, last year and we had dinner and we were talking about it. And I said, Ben, we should write a book about this. And he said, yeah, of course we should write a book about this. So we started writing and we thought, we figured we'd just self-publish it. Right and you know like five people. My mom would buy it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> she'd buy thirty copies. Yeah, exactly. She'd buy like five copies. But yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we were doing that, and then uh, we I, I knew some people at O'Reilly, and I just mentioned it casually to one of them, and they said, "Well, would you consider publishing this a, a area for us?" And I was like, "Oh, yeah, I consider publishing with O'Reilly. Yeah, sure." And uh, yeah, they took it up. It caught us by surprise, but by the time O'Reilly got it, it was mostly done. We really benefited from their their editorial help. We cleaned up the book a lot, I think. It looks a lot nicer than what we could have done, you know. <laughs> it's uh, I'm really proud of it the way where it came out. We got our we got the animal we wanted, you know. So so it, it, it was a you know, great experience. So take us through the narrative arc of the book because I think this ties back to exactly the stuff we've been talking about in terms of how enterprise differs for product managers. So I'm cracking open my new copy. It's called Building Products for the Enterprise. What are, what are you telling me here? Sure. So first of all, we have to make the case for why enterprise product management is different. And I think that there are a, there are a couple of ways in which it, we really define our, our, our kind of market here. Uh, one of them is that we sell to you know, we sell our product, right? So in the consumer software market, you, know, you do have a direct sales model in some cases. You know, I pay for Netflix, I pay for Spotify, things like this. But those kinds of uh, direct sale models are self-service. Uh, the average sales price is very small, you know, so fifteen bucks or whatever it is, uh, and they have gigantic user bases, right? Because obviously they're very expensive businesses; they, they need you know, their consumer products. So of course you have a giant user base. And what that means is that you know any individual customer means means squat, 
right, to, to, to Spotify or Netflix or one of these other ones. Even though they wouldn't say that probably. Yeah, of course. No, I mean. You'll uh, say it. <laughs> I, but like, you know, it, you, you define your market in terms of customer segments, right? And of course, for, for many, many of the uh, consumer products, you don't pay anything at all. So, you know, think of a Google or Facebook famously, right? I mean, you, aren't, you are the product when you use those, use those things. And their customers, if you want to call them that, are advertisers, right? So that, that, that really changes the whole way a product is designed, is planned, is built, is managed, uh, all those things. And for any any you know product manager in in that kind of scenario, and I don't mean mean make it, mean to make it sound easy because it's not. It's a you know that just it just involves a, a whole series of challenges that are different from ours. And for in that world, a product manager at like Google or Facebook, you know they don't they don't meet a customer quote unquote until you're very very senior in in that organization in terms of an advertiser or or a brand or something like this. Which is completely different than how we work, right? So in the enterprise, uh, we have if you have a couple dozen customers in enterprise software, like you have a very successful product, right? Our customers sell, you know, write us checks of five, six, seven digits, and the sales cycle is six to twelve months long. Usually, uh, you have a whole selling process, a high touch sales model traditionally, and that's you know it, it can be more and less true depending on some products. You know, you can self service in some cases. With like a basic CRM product or a certain or, or, or a basic web analytics product or something like that, but for the most part, you have an implementation cycle at a, at a company that's more specialized software. We you know we have to work with a number of different stakeholders in the in the customer to get them using our software, trained in the software, implemented and working correctly. There are you no know, renewal cycles, and and you know we we work on you know improving the software as we go as we as we go on, uh, and that's a relationship that you have with that customer. And the breakout leaders in enterprise software, they might have you know tens of thousands of customers. You think of like a, a Salesforce again, or Adobe Marketing Cloud, or Microsoft, you know Azure, or something like this. You know, they have you know tons and tons and tons of customers. But for most of us, you know, we, you know, we, you're talking about a customer bases in the dozens or hundreds as a as a pretty very very healthy stable of customers. So, you know, a product manager in our world has to not only lead development and develop our, our you know, develop our roadmap, track our roadmap, de- de- decide what it is we're going to we're going to build, but then also we're also involved on the marketing and sales side because you know, one thing that we we stress is that, you know, sales is everyone's responsibility in our world. Um, not to say that like we're sellers, but we you know we our company sells software, so we we're all in that. So, that's the first part of our book, just laying out the case for why this is different. And then you know, we, we break down the key lessons you need to know as an enterprise product manager into three big categories. It was tough for us to figure out some, some schema to bucket all the stuff that we think you need to know as an enterprise product manager. And to be clear, you know, we don't have like a, the one true way to do product management, right? I mean, the, the cool thing is that this function is still growing in our industry. Our industry is changing all the time. And we're not like we're not gurus or nothing. Like, you know, we just you know what we saw though in the in in the product management world out there is you have a lot of thought leaders, right? You have a lot of professional speakers. You have a lot of VCs. You have a lot of entrepreneurs or whoever. Yeah, a lot of people who aren't product managers. <laughs> uh, you have you have these guys who you know from Google or Facebook who managed a product ten years ago, who are still talking about being a product manager and. It drives us nuts, honestly, because it's just not very useful, you know, practically for us. And that's what 
kind of made us frustrated to begin with. And since we started writing about this, and since, since we started talking about enterprise product management, the reception we've gotten has been tremendous. People, you know, email us, tweet us, whatever, and say, like, finally, like, there's like, there's something that you know, speaks to this. This maybe it's a, maybe it's a subset, or maybe it's just a different, a different field of product management, because um, there hasn't been a whole lot written and directed towards this world, and we're hoping to make some small contribution to know what that is. So what are some of, you know, so we talk a lot about validated learning, for example, right? You know, the build, measure, learn. We talk about lean principles. And it's been, I think, well documented that scaling lean is a hard concept. And that assumes that you were once small and then had the ability to maybe say, let's try to preserve this philosophy or way of doing as we scale up. But, you know, a company like SaaS is a good example. This is a company that's been around 40 years. So what are some of the fundamental philosophies of enterprise product management or or, or what are the ways in which they're fundamentally different from startup thinking? So one thing that we, we that I found surprising, which a lot of people don't know, is that most enterprise, so the, the largest section of enterprise software, enterprise software market, is dominated by like five or six firms. The top twenty five enterprise software firms, only two have been founded in the last 20, 25 years, and and that's Google and Salesforce, and Google is like number. Th- Fifteen or something like that. Like it's it's not large, and so Salesforce is they might be in the top ten. I'm not sure, but the rest of them have not been. Like the rest of them are like IBM, HP, Symantec, Microsoft, SaaS, Adobe. I mean, these are not companies that are. We were not startups and we hit hyper growth, right? The 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 cycle of like you know this massive growth and all of a sudden you are you know you're adding a thousand percent you know customer growth over you know two or three or five years whatever. Uh, we we see that much more often on the, on the consumer side than on the enterprise software side. What does the typical sort of growth curve look like for for an enterprise company that's succeeding? Mm-hmm. Is it year on year growth? Is are there flatline periods? Sure. Uh, well, I, th- I think I think that probably all depends on the product you're talking about and the area you're talking about, right? So we're talking about you know enterprise SaaS, like everything's changing a whole lot, right? Like no one was on AWS. Ten years ago, and now everyone's on AWS. Or you know, look, Azure has had enormous growth as well. And you know, Salesforce is just a new, and a lot of the marketing clouds are kind of new-ish products. But they've actually been their their underlying products have been around for, gosh, like more than a, a decade, fifteen years, or something like that. If you're doubling your 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 customer your customer base every year, you know, you're either, you're either very very small to begin with. You're starting from a small base, or You've got dynamite in your hands, or something like that, right? Like I said, so you're for, keeping customers in in this space. It's, this is about ma- keeping the relationship integrated yeah. and upselling new products as part of the offering. Like, yeah, well, what is that in enterprise SaaS? Of course, you know it, uh, the the whole value is in the subscription model, right? So the the recurring revenue that you get from your stable of customers and winning new customers is a big part of your you know revenue growth, but also. Upselling existing customers into other, you know, other features, other modules, other products—that is a huge part of your uh, of your business model. So, I remember at Cormetrics, uh, a, a large portion of our revenue, maybe a majority of our revenue, came from uh, upselling existing customers to 
at the, that time we, we sold you know more uh, more server calls or new modules on our platform that people wanted to use because as they became more sophisticated users of digital marketing tools and digital analytics, they learned that they could do more with their data. They could actually you know create more value with these other you know modules that we built. Um, and the, of course, that's why we built them, right? So I think the same is true with a lot of marketing cloud products. You know, all the you know what Salesforce is doing with its you know sales cloud, its commerce cloud, its customer cloud, its you know, whatever other clouds they have. You know, it, it, it's very very similar, right? Because you know, if you're using one, then you know you can you see enormous benefit by by adding new modules, adding new clouds, and and some of that changes the way you work as a company. And as you develop yourself as a company, and you your organization changes around your usage of some of these products, that itself becomes a moat that a company can take advantage of. A good example is Adobe Analytics, because they've really changed the way digital marketing works across lots of different industries. They are basically the, the default go-to for a lot of companies when it comes to their digital marketing stack. You know, that's not to say you can't use different tools. You certainly can, but they they were the preferred vendor, and and they became that way ten years ago or so. And now, gosh, you go into almost any large company. There's somebody there using Adobe Analytics. So the terminology, the you know, the practices, the way marketing works um, has become almost like synonymous in a lot of ways with like Adobe marketing. And some people are annoyed by that. <laughs> you know, people who aren't Adobe probably. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the, so the other one's Google Analytics, right? So everyone uses Google Analytics because it's free, and they tried to commoditize that market, and they took away a large part of that market, which is why you can't really make a business just selling commodity web analytics anymore because Google took all that. All this is just to say that different different companies can you know they build a moat like that. Even IBM, right? So people, you know, kind of chuckle at IBM now because they, you know, they're an older company. They've had a very hard time growing. They, I think, they just turned around their revenue declines like last quarter or something like that. They still make a billion dollars a year on Lotus Notes, right? Like, and I'm, I'm not sure if you ever used Lotus Notes. I did as an IBMer, and oh my god, it made, made you want to gouge your eyes out, you right. know. But they, people still buy that, you know. And the thing is, that a lot of people who don't work in enterprise software don't. Always understand just how large that market is and how long the tail is. Yeah, and they still they still make money doing that. Uh, they still make money on main a lot of money on mainframes. One of the things that I think is interesting about enterprises, there is a little bit of a polarizing effect, right? Like either you're in that world of large companies and all of the things that that means for better and for worse, or you're de- you know, defiantly and definitively not. And when you're not, I mean, and, and I'm one of these people, you do become ignorant of just the scale at which, at, at which it operates or, or the challenges of speed to change, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a company of 100,000 people or 200,000 people can't just stop using Dropbox and start using Box and then go <laughs> back to Dropbox if they want. I mean, that's major disruption. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, that's certainly true. And I also think that the enterprise market suffers a little bit for not having, we don't have a Google. We don't have a Facebook or one of these things that just completely took over the world, you know, in, in, you know, overnight. Those two took, well, they weren't overnight successes, but you know, you know what I mean. Yep. We don't have, we don't have that. We also don't have this, like, you know, this the the VC industrial complex. <laughs> this is like banging the drum, you know, every day. There's startups, 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 you know, entering this market, and they're really there are lots of startups in the enterprise space, and there's a lot of there's a ton of cool stuff they're doing, and there's lots of 
opportunity there. But, uh, you know, they are going up against uh, large entrenched competitors. But I, I'll tell you that what I, one kind of thesis I have is that it's actually a better, much better time for startups and enterprise than it is for startups and consumer. Because today, I mean, in, cons- in the consumer world, you have the GAFA 4, right? Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. If you aren't playing with them, if you don't deal with them, if you don't integrate with them in some sort of way, basically any consumer-facing startup could be squashed tomorrow if any of them like sneeze, right? And you have tons of examples of that right now. Right now. So half of the, the consumer startups are hoping that they'll be bought <laughs> by, by one of the big firms, right? And the other half are living in terror that one day their, their, their business is, is just going to disappear. Yeah. Zuckerberg change, you know, tweaks the news feed, and all of a sudden half of digital journalism is, is dead. And we don't have that in enterprise. We have big companies. You know, IBM is big, and you know, AWS is, I guess is big, and but they're not really, you know, they're, they're not going to crush your startup start necessarily. Salesforce, Adobe, they're really big. You know, we we have big companies, but the spectrum of needs out there in the enterprise space and what companies need to continue doing to to innovate, to reach customers, to talk to customers, to know what they want, and to deliver goods to them is always changing. And it's always changing way faster than there are companies coming up to meet those needs. If one of the very large enterprise software companies sneezes, you know, they probably won't kill a startup, or many anyway, right? So I think there's actually a lot more a lot more opportunity out there. But again, we don't have the VC industrial complex, you know, banging a drum for it. So, um, you know, I think it's you know, a lot of people get, you know, go into the consumer market instead because they want to be Zuckerberg or something like that. So, and I think it's, uh, that's a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's a sex appeal for sure. I mean, yeah. I remember recently I was at a at a bookshop and there was a young tech entrepreneur on the cover of GQ and I thought, "Oh, we've turned a corner." You know, <laughs> it used to be Brad Pitt. Now it's like this guy. Some guy with bad hair. Startup. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that it strikes me to go back to what you were saying before about number of customers and this idea that at enterprise you're not talking about hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands, you're talking about 10 or a couple dozen would be in the context of requirements gathering, mm-hmm. which leads me back to agile. What does it look like or mean to be agile in, in an enterprise product organization. Can you really be that, or do waterfall methods force their way in mm-hmm. because of the, the slow-moving nature of everything? There's lots of different ways you can do that. But um, you can't just test all the time like you can. like you know, Google tests like a billion shades of yellow on its <laughs> logo or whatever. You know, we have, I think a 12-month roadmap is generally the, 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 the ideal time frame. Uh, for us, again, maybe there are places where this could be different, but I think for us, that really works. 12 months ahead is a good, is a good you know, rule of thumb that we use to plan out, you know, what are the epics that we're going, to, we're going to plan out to get to what kind of goals we have at the end of the year. Do we need new rev- revenue-generating features or modules or products? Do we need customer acquisition or customer retention tools? You know, in terms of features, enhancements, products, or just improvements, stability. You know, whatever those things are. Then within our planning time frame, it, I guess it is a little bit waterfall. I mean, you need to, you know, plan what those things are going to be. Because once we establish what those goals are, and we establish what we you know who who is accountable in what ways in, in in that time frame, then we can focus on questions like 
you know, um, uh, what and how do we, are we doing as opposed to uh, why are we doing this? What, why, why don't we do this other thing and, and so forth, which are interminable kind of questions. Whether that's waterfall, whether it's agile, I don't care. I mean, yeah, it, it works really well across a, a lot of different organizations where we have very specific business goals for what our products need to do, again, in a direct sales kind of model. That doesn't mean we can't be agile, right? You know, if a, but the, the reality is if a customer, if one of our largest customers comes and knocks on our door tomorrow and they need something and they're paying us a million dollars a year, we're pretty likely to go do it, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and every enterprise product manager has the the experience of you know some important honcho getting on a phone and calling us and saying I need this done uh, really like now, and that messes up your planning. It introduces technical debt. It you know messes up your planning process. It you have to push things out to another sprint or another quarter or whatever, and that all sucks. Uh, but at the end of the day, you keep a customer and you keep them happy and. Keeping you know happy customers uh, is something I'll do you know uh, seven days a week and and take the technical debt and worry about that a, another time. You know, listening to you speak, I'm trying to think about how do you pitch the sex appeal of enterprise, right? And part of what's coming up in my mind is it sounds like there is stability in a way that isn't always afforded in in that kind of move fast and break things model and and I, by stability what i mean is time to think <laughs> like <laughs> time to actually take a minute and think time to actually go and collect inputs with breadth and with depth which i think for me certainly as a product person and i, I do a lot of consulting with organizations that are kind of trying specifically to get from an A to a B. And one of the things that I'm wrestling with regularly is how deep can I go with this? And it's almost never as deep as I would like to. It's, 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 it's a lot of this will have to be good enough for now, which is hard, right? Because sometimes <laughs> you want to be deep yeah. in it. But I don't know. What is the sex appeal of, of enterprise well, product management? I, so I, I will say, that, I mean, every product manager, whether you're in consumer enterprise or whatever, is always thinking like, well, it's going to be good enough. <laughs> I got a billion other things to do. How do you pitch the sex appeal? I mean, this is one of those things. Like, you know, now, especially working in tech, you know, product is super, super hot, right? People like, and I think part of it is that people like the idea of being a manager, right? <laughs> <laughs> they like the daily, like Wait the till they find out there's no manager. Yeah, no, I can't control anybody, man. <laughs> That's my daughter. Um, you know, um, it's a cool, I think, I think it's a very exciting role because you do wear a lot of hats and you have a lot of different areas of responsibility. It's not great in that you don't have a whole lot of authority, like I don't, I, I my engineers don't report to me. They they report up through the engineering function. Um, marketing doesn't report to me. Sales doesn't report to me. The other product managers don't report to me. You know, we all work collaboratively. I, the metaphor we use in our book is product management as like a sheepdog, right? Because we are trying to get everybody churning in the same direction. And if you get everybody churning in the same direction, the product management can lead by influence and by example. And by a very clear vision of the product and strategy for how to get there. And that's what we have to first develop and then articulate to the rest of the team. So that development knows you know, not only what we need to build, but also why and what like, you know, the strategic framework that this fits into. Because once they understand that, then they're going to they're gonna build a much better product. 
Uh, marketing needs to know, you know, what our product does and why why do customers care? And then, okay, once I get that, now I can now I can you know make that into marketing, uh, which they're better at than we are, as I just uh, talked about before. Sales needs to understand what the heck the product does and like how do I how do I communicate this to a customer so that they can do the selling, which is what they're good at. And every every team is like that. And product is really. Uh, what they rely on to to define that vision and what that strategy is, and then also define, you know, how how do I go do my job best? Whether that's you know, it can be it can be cool. Um, it's sometimes some, sometimes it's not cool. You know, I, uh, what I what, <laughs> when's it not cool? Well, what I like to say is that like every the best job you'll ever have, you will only love about seventy percent of the time, right? There's always going to be like. Thirty percent of the time, you're just going to bang your bang your head in the wall, right? And especially when you're dealing with any any business where you have customers, sometimes you have frustrating parts, right? Sometimes customers don't do what you, you want them to do. Really? Yeah, oh. you know, and you know they you know there's either expectations or they want to play like hardball and they want to be a jerk about it. It's not all roses, like you know. Sometimes it's, it's stressful and like it sucks, and sometimes the product doesn't do as well as you think it should. And I actually think that a really Good experience for any product manager to have. I, I I feel bad for anyone who started off as like a product manager for Google, right? Because like, what do you do, right? Like, like you're Google, right, or you're Gmail or something like that. Like, it must be a cool job. Don't get me wrong, but like, if you're the market leader and no one's even close, what do you do, right? I mean, a great great training to be a pro- great great product manager is to work on a like middle of the pack product, and like. To scrap it, right? So, like, because I mean, if you have actual competitors, and it's a day by day, deal by deal, slow ramp sort of thing, and hopefully after that, at the end of that, you're more, you're a better product, and you're you, you're you're a better company, and you win, and sometimes you lose, and that then you learn from that too, right? Uh, Blair, is there a favorite chapter? section nugget in the book that you're especially proud of or just just think for anyone who's going to pick up a copy real soon I mean I think the whole book is good <laughs> <laughs> good answer good um, answer I think that uh, the chapter on uh, organizational knowledge is really important because it, it, it distills like how a lot of enterprise software companies work uh, and like so, it has like we have a section on like you know on development, marketing, sales, and uh, design and leadership, and those are like five big stakeholders in any any of these companies that product management has to work with really really closely. And we have some ideas about how you can do that most effectively. The other thing I, I like actually is um, we surveyed a bunch of our friends at different enterprise software companies. And at the end of every chapter, we have a little profile from you know people who we know, other product managers, and you know so we have a, a buddy of mine from Asana, a buddy of mine from IBM, um, Dynamic Action. I, I I didn't agree with everything they said. Um, they didn't probably didn't agree with everything I said, right? But like we're all kind of like in the same world. And we all kind of recognize where each other are coming from, and so getting all those different perspectives, we tried to put them in the book anyway, because like we said, like. We're not gurus. Like we, you know, there are um, all different ways you can do product management, and certainly in enterprise software. And this is just like kind of our take, and some stuff that's worked for us. And uh, we're continuing to learn new stuff. So this is uh, our best shot for now. And maybe in like five years or whatever, we'll do another edition, and it'll be totally different. I don't know. All right. So what's the what's the core value proposition of the book? What am I going to get out of it? So if you are in enterprise software now. Or you're just interested in product management generally, or you're looking to get into the in, into the role. 
this book will help you uh, understand the role better. Uh, it'll make you a more effective product manager. And if you're not interested in enterprise software, at least you understand a different perspective of what product management does and, uh, and hopefully uh, make, you, make you a better one. One of the things I, I keep telling people is they should not, you know, product management should never be your first job in, in technology. And uh, I think this book is a good example of why. Like there's, just, there's a lot more stuff you need to know before you jump into, uh, into the, a role like that. So. Okay, awesome. We're almost out of time, but I just have a couple last questions that yeah. I want to fly through with you here. Uh, one piece of practical advice that you would give to somebody who's looking to get into product management. I would spend a year or two or more uh, in a different role, an adjacent role. So then that can be engineering, it can be marketing, it can be sales, it can be sales engineering, it can be whatever in, in the industry. So just so you understand the market you're selling into. The most important thing as an enterprise product manager to know is understand the industry uh, that you're selling into and the market for the, for products like yours. Without that knowledge, you really you're just kind of flying blind. So getting that kind of uh, view already uh, into the industry is, is is super important. Right. What about hard lessons learned, or or maybe to put it a different way, common pitfalls to watch out for, especially when you're just kind of getting started. Uh, not reading the documentation is a big one. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, and, and cool. Like, documentation sucks. I mean, no one wants to read it, right? But like. 90% of the questions that anybody has are in the documentation. And you don't have to remember the whole thing, but understanding kind of how a product works. And you don't, you don't, need, you don't need to be a Jedi master at a, at a product to manage it. Um, you, need to, you do need to understand how it works, and you need to understand like, you know, how to use it. You should use it. You don't need to understand the code base or whatever. That, that's, that's unnecessary. But yeah, basic you know, system architecture is pretty important. And because you don't understand those things, then you get you know, down the line long enough that you're, you know, you're past the point where you should know it. And then, and then you're, you're in a really you know, weird position where you get to start asking people about like, very basic questions about a product. So. Read the documentation. The documentation in parentheses sounds very ominous, though, when you say <laughs> it. All right. Why do you love this job so much? It allows me to have a, a, a pretty wide amount of um, influence over the future of a, a product that really matters. I mean, a lot of companies, you know, use both my product now and the products I've worked on in the past, and like they've touched those products, touched lots of lives. Uh, and you know, it's not one of those like making the world a better place kind of things, but it kind of does. I mean, it makes the whole you know the gears of the economy and the world run. The whole the whole world runs on enterprise software, even if you don't realize it or not. And um, no, it's not like Google, right? But like it, the, the, everything runs on something. And there's a product manager behind every piece of software you've ever you've touched or everything you ever bought. And um, that's a big part of our world. Cool. Do you have any recommended resources besides yours and Ben's <laughs> book, which, by the way, folks, is called Building Products for the Enterprise? And we'll put it in the show notes, and, and maybe I'll talk to Blair about getting us some copies we can give out to our audience as well. But um, besides building products for the enterprise, recommended reads, pundits that you like that, that are, are speaking to your world more so than the others? There are some of the obvious ones, like, you know, like uh, Crossing the Chasm is a big one, and, you know, all Clay Christensen stuff, you know, that sort of thing. I think that some, some people will, like, recommend, like, the building habit-forming products and lean analytics and lean product books. I think that understanding the psychology behind um, not just, like, how people use products, but then, like, just how people act is important not only to build products that people can use, 
But then also, ninety percent of product management is dealing with people and influencing them, understanding what they're saying and communicating. So being a very, very effective, I mean, written communicator, spoken communicator, and maybe listener, uh, you know, is is very, very important. And for that, that fiction really helps me. I'm reading Anna Karenina right now, uh, and does it make me a better product manager? Yeah, I think it probably does. I could probably couldn't articulate how, but. You know, I think fiction gets a bad rap sometimes, but fiction, but good fiction helps you learn to empathize better, and empathy is, is fundamentally one of the key skills I think a product manager should have. So developing empathy is uh, important, so you read fiction. Cool. I'll give you a fun fact about Anna Karenina in the context of product. Leo Tolstoy wrote 60 pages of that book before he realized what it was actually about, burned the 60 pages. I don't know if he actually burned them or not. And uh, started the book on page one, which I think I I tell this story a lot in my classes because I think it's a great testament to don't let investment or or over-investment in one direction be too much of a a weight, right? If you've got to pivot, you've got to pivot. And, And sometimes... Sometimes you hope to pivot sooner. I mean, you you wrote a book. I'm sure you would have liked to know that you were on the wrong path before 60 pages. Oh, but, man. All right. Uh, last question for you, Blair. Is there a personal or professional mantra or philosophy that you use to kind of guide who you are in the world that you want to leave us with? Yeah, ask, ask for forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Blair Reeves, for being a part of our project, and uh, best of luck to you with everything that you do. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for listening to 100PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe in the Apple Store, at Google Play, or on Stitcher, or leave us a great review so others can help find us. If you want to get in touch directly, email me, Suzanne, at 100productmanagers.com, or visit us on the web. Thank you.